Welcome back to the Consequences podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. It's the best seaside in the world. It's the best seaside in the world. It's the best in the world. It's the best seaside in the world. It's the best seaside in the world. It's the best in the world. Welcome back, everybody. Today, um, having talked about uh, L and freeze frame, what Godley and Cream did after 10cc, we're going to go right back to the very interesting start of their writing career or music writing career, looking at songs that they wrote and recorded, uh, often with help from other members of 10cc before that band got going. Hot Legs material. Uh, will be featured strongly, but we're going to go back much further than that. And you'll hear, folks, that the at the very start of the podcast, with that wonderful snippet from that gorgeous song, Their Seaside in the World, which I absolutely love. And if I'm right in thinking, Paul, that's the first of the Kevin Lowell songs that they collaborated on while they were at college. Is that right? I think it was just pre-Kev's time at college, uh, possibly. I'm not sure. I think in his book, he says it was the first song they wrote and recorded. That That's a significant thing. We perhaps can't place it um, exactly um, time-wise, although I've got a feeling it might be 1967. But it's significant for several reasons. One, uh, it was recorded in Graham's house, uh, I think, perhaps using Graham's equipment. Which I find uh, amazing. Yeah. Graham had a reel-to-reel Revox tape machine, I believe. But this, to me, Paul, sounds very much like a, a very sophisticated four-track recording in a studio. You know, the stereo panning is very grown up. There's quite a bit of overdubbing going on. Yeah, there's a wonderful, lovely Rita-esque, or more, more I should say, Good Day Sunshine-esque, a kind of semi-barrel-house piano solo in the middle. Yeah. And I think it's so... Resem- uh, so resembles those Beatles tracks that it uh, must date it to six, at least post 66. Yeah. Because it, it's got that British psychedelia feel. Yeah, the recording is interesting, isn't it? Because it, it is. it does sound sophisticated. Yeah, and it's not the kind of thing that they could have done on a, on a stereo reel-to-reel. I assume Lowell's playing guitar and piano on this. Yeah, he's already very quickly an accomplished musician. Uh, very much so. Some great piano work and lovely 12-string guitar as well. He would have had to overdub, which means they, they had to have recorded it in a multi-track studio, uh, which begs the question, could they have gone along to Intercity in Stockport and, you know, where Pete Tattersall would have been engineering, or did they go further afield? Did they record it in London? mention that do they in Kev's book no I don't think that's possible that's because Kev has a strong memory of 
going to going into a professional recording studio for the first time in 1968 when he put the vocal down on to fly away but we we get we're getting ahead of ourselves that's right it just it's going back to the actual song though it's it's a gorgeous song um kev kind of uh almost kind of throws it away in his book i mean yeah. for a start it was a hell of a find in that book this song and the other sort of unknown songs joyous little treasures aren't yeah, they yeah uh, um I don't want these dismissed as kind of juvenilia because although they are in a sense melodically uh, and lyrically in some cases they're really strong mm. they're they're really really good songs and I think it's often true that great songwriters almost despite themselves often write some of their best material very very early on mm. just as an aside here do you know the first music that Noddy Holder wrote no just as an example I think I'm right in saying this 1967 he wrote the chorus to what would become Merry Christmas everybody <laughs> uh, that was the first thing he ever wrote and then kind of repurposed it years later Brian and Wilson of course banged out Surfer, Sur Girl. Surfer Girl in his car you know <laughs> yeah. in his head and this thing this sort of thing comes up again and again um I think Hello, It's Me was one of the first songs Todd Rundgren ever wrote and They Don't Know was the second song uh, Kirsty McCall ever wrote, possibly her most accomplished, you know, mm. melodic song. Uh, I'm getting off the track here, but suffice to say, just because it, a song is very early in somebody's writing career and even if it may not be realised from a recording standpoint, it can often show us a lot about a writer or writers in this case and how gifted they are mm. there's certainly some some very sophisticated chord work going on in the song yeah and um, we were just having a play weren't we uh with what we think of the chords to this and the opening of the song which i guess is kind of the chorus it is has some mesmerizing chord changes in um, that uh, I, I could listen to this song all day for <laughs> yeah i mean it, it reminds me in, in a way of um of an album I, I really like. The first album by The Thrills, okay. uh, and a track, uh, you might remember Big Sur, which I really, really liked. It's got that kind of lazy West Coast sound. Mm. Um, similar, it's kind of quite rich and soft acoustic guitar bed. Uh, and, and this is very, very similar. The song starts with the E flat minor chord, E flat minor seventh. And initially I thought, all right, okay, the song's in E flat minor, which is a very unusual chord, particularly to write on the guitar. Yeah, you're right. It may have been written on the piano, of course. It's mm. a lot easier to play, mainly black notes there. Or maybe... Could it be using a capo? capo? Yeah, 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 very, very possibly. But what gets Paul and I very, very excited is the shift from that E flat minor seventh chord down to an unexpected G flat major. And I just love that transition. That's the one. That is gorgeous. The B flat minor there. Um, and I, I just doing a lot of thinking about it, thinking, is it in the key of E flat minor, in which case the E flat minor is the one, the G flat is the third, and the B flat minor is the fifth. But Paul, you were you kind of 
unraveled this this mystery and I think it makes more sense if we think of it in terms of a major key. Yeah, I think if you roll on a few seconds to the the end of the phrase then it then it resolves nicely to the F sharp which is the actual tonic. So it kind of rests on the G flat major and that made you think, all right, maybe the song is written in, in G flat major. So that means that the opening of the song, the first chord starts kind of unexpectedly on the relative minor, yeah. um, the sixth of, of that major key. Um, and so the second chord, when it hits the G flat. It is what will eventually become a tonic. It's, yeah. it's thrown away almost. Yeah, and, and then... songs don't normally kind of resolve to the tonic, the first of the of the scale. Well, it's not resolving. It's just pass, it's saying hi as it passes through. That's it's... right. But what I'm saying is that songs don't normally uh, rest on the, the tonic chord until the end of a chorus or the end of a verse or something like that, don't mm. they? So, yeah, so it's kind of thrown in there unexpectedly. And I think it's fantastic. And then here, where he moves there to the mediant, that's the three chord if we're talking about the sort of tonic chord being the major at the end. That's a lovely change. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, not, great work, Lol. We, we assume it is Lol writing the at least the chords, but who knows, maybe Kev came up with a melody. Um, I think Kev calls it in Space Cake uh, a sub-Beatles <laughs> yeah. ditty or something. And I yeah. really think he, uh, they're just... I don't possibly don't realise what a lovely song that is. I think it's 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 really it's delicious. I'm right behind you on a seaweed magic carpet, and my water wings are It's got a, a simple melody. Yeah, the lyrics, like a lot of the early Kevin Lowell stuff, the lyrics are a little bit sort of homespun, twee, arguably. Yeah. Um, but likeable, uh, very at odds with what they'd come up with later. Yeah, that will be a theme I think we're going to un unravel during this episode. That they had. Uh, well, 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 we'll come to that. As, yeah, as very we much go. so. Another thing that struck me um, hearing this song, which I only heard recently, uh, only downloaded Kev's book uh, a couple of months ago for the first time, and for some reason skipped over those those little audio clips. But when I when I did, it was just really like stumbling on hidden treasure. Fantastic. One of the things that struck me was it, it sounds to me like Graham's playing bass on this. Could well be. It sounds to me like he's counting the thing off. Yeah. does sound like his voice aka producing it yeah which yeah. uh which i mean he we do know that uh godly and cream were being sort of inverted commas managed yeah. by harvey and graham that's really. right they were kind of mentoring kevin lowell um so it stands to reason that the, the three of them, that is, is Graham, Kevin Lowell, would have, would have recorded that together wherever it may be. And we're not sure whether it was in somebody's house or whether it was a more sophisticated affair. We yeah. don't know. It could well have been in Graham's house with, with two tape two, machines. Two tape machines, yeah. could have been. And they were yeah. just bouncing between. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, what a, what a debut. It's just really, really fantastic. And there are two other really interesting audio clips, aren't there, Paul? 
in Kev's book in, in that early section. He does pass by them very, very quickly. But yeah, but he's, I think he's pleased or proud enough with them to put them in the book, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, two more great songs. Probably we'll take these together, I guess. Cowboys and Indians and Chaplin House. Yeah. These two uh, are two of four songs that uh, Kev talks about that they wrote, meaning him and Lol, while he was at college. So we kind of date these to 66, 67, we think. Mm. Um, There's two lost songs, Over and Above My Head and One and One Make Love, um, which I think Kev actually tried to find and and couldn't. Mm. These are all these four songs, um, plus, very significantly, Fly Away, Today and Take Me Back, which are three absolutely key songs, which are recorded a bit later. These seven songs, I think I have this right, uh, appear on a a picture of a a tape Mm. that I've seen, that I've I've just seen the picture. I I haven't actually heard the tape, but I'm I'm assuming that what we have on Space Cake are are extracts from this tape. Very interesting material being written early. And and these two, Cowboys and Indians and Chaplin House, they, they take best seaside a bit further they're 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 more fully realized in terms of arrangements that's right and and particularly cowboys and indians has got a real fantastic sense of immediacy and power particularly when all the the harmonies come in on the on the chorus fantastic yeah the 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 kevin lowell sound is fully formed the house is a teepee and so harmonies i mean obviously kev's vocal lead vocals are brilliant already yeah. but that the, the the power that they're getting from we assume still fairly meager resources recording wise yeah and uh lol's guitar is awesome on that song it sounds really like, brilliant the whole feel is a bit like buffalo springfield yeah and yeah i i think the same the harmonies remind me of crosby stills nash um there's a lot of a west coast kind of sound coming out here yeah which yeah. is interesting because Kev doesn't really mention that type of influence in his book. He talks about uh, loving jazz, particularly in the 60s. You know, when he's going to the record shop, he's he's in the booth listening to those cool jazz albums with mm. black and white covers, he says. Mm. Uh, and, of course, he's he and everyone he knows is really heavily influenced by Sgt. Pepper when it comes out, when literally everyone in the college is buried away listening to their new copy of it. Uh, but he doesn't mention... That, that American West Coast influence, uh, which I find interesting because it really comes out in the songs, in yeah, my opinion. Particularly that one. Helplessly hoping her harlequin, others nearby, awaiting a word. And I wonder, still I wonder, who's about the Cowboys and 
And Chaplin House, um, there you can see some of the lyrical themes. It's slightly dark. It's a dark character piece. You know, people, as we'd find late, later on, maybe in 10CC albums, are pretty unhappy characters yeah. together or, or being forced together in some kind of uh, semi-destructive relationship. It's a story about a, a, a gigolo, I think. I'm not, I'm not, I can't, I can't quite get a handle on exactly what's happening. Um, but another another very strong song, isn't it? I, I I love it, and I like the I like the storytelling that's going on. It reminds me of some of Paul McCartney's stuff, actually. Uh, the fact you've got characters. There's a Sally who moves into Mr. Farthing's bungalow. Mr. Farthing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the consequences alert. Miss Farthing. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Mum. <clears throat> that I know a little place where I can go where Sally Hawkins used to run the show but that was long before your time or hers or mine I, I like following that story and if I have a problem with, with some of this early stuff and I, and I have to be gentle because these guys are still in their late teens aren't they um yeah i think some of the lyrics are a bit twee but with this one i get the sense that um that kev or lol have found a, a, an interesting tale to tell so it, for that reason it's got a bit more focus a bit more bite and it draws you in a little bit more but there'll always be chaplin house and the picture one believes rolling shoulders with Whereas some of the other songs, uh, the lyrics kind of come across as, if I can be so bold, a bit like sixth form poetry hmm. that doesn't really that doesn't draw you in because there's not a lyrical hook. With this one, I feel that there kind of is a lyrical hook because you want to know what happens with the characters in the story. Do you think that yeah. that's a fair point? Yeah, it's a, it's a significant lyric from them because it's it's their first, I think it's their first narrative that kind of makes sense. Cowboys and Indians kind of is a story song as well, but you, in, in Chaplin House, you get a much clearer, direct uh, portrait of... of of a couple of personalities, yeah. and, and and you get that much later in their work. So I think I think it's great. I mean, this song um, was recorded and released as a single by Dave Berry. That's right. Um, that was recorded at Strawberry, and uh, his version, perhaps we can hear a bit of that too, is is decent. But just because it hasn't got Kev singing the lead, <laughs> it doesn't have that same power. No, I, I, I feel. Yeah, totally. Seven days a week ago, Mr. Farthing named the day. Sally moved into his bungalow It would have happened anyway there's a lot musically going on there that I find really interesting the, the very very start of it reminds me a little bit of walk on by um, you've got that beautiful kind of minor seventh sort of feel but 
the most interesting thing for me musically is that Lowell's using a lot of sus4 chords, which is basically a major chord where the, the middle note of the chord is, is raised by a semitone. Um, it's used an awful lot in church music, for example. But mm. I really, really like that. Uh, and, and you've got some nice descending chords going on as well. I think it's musically very sophisticated. Mm. You've never heard of Chaplin House But there'll always be Chaplin House And a showcase of tin soldiers Standing shoulder next to shoulder And a bookcase that was mine And the timepiece that's still ticking on the wall Considering their age at the time, they must have been playing their instruments for a, a long, long time by this stage, Paul. They're very accomplished already. Yeah. Um, yeah, this has a full drum track, doesn't it? It does, and I think Kev's drum style is fully formed. Again, his, yeah, and, and Lowell is stunning as a, as a keyboard player and a guitarist. Yeah. Uh, and presumably playing bass on this, I think. Um, yeah, it's 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 a real eye opener. I mean, the, these songs were only sort of came about, what were only known about uh, and heard at the same time when, when we got Kev's book, and yeah. they for me, uh, they were one of the highlights of, of the book. Yeah, definitely. Um, and there, there were lots of songs around at that time, um, going back to Kev and Lowell's uh, relationship with with Graham and with Harvey Lisberg. Um, Harvey Lisberg was a fan of a big fan of, the, of their songwriting. Yeah, he said this. He said this to us recently, and and uh, recently when I was speaking on the phone, he got very excited about these early songs, and he started singing um, the best seaside down the phone to me, which I don't <laughs> think he'd heard for a long time. I'm not sure that he was aware that that song was on Space Cake, and he also sang another song down the phone i can't remember how the how the melody went but it was called good morning mr baker mm. this and this lost song was one that they had to audition for mickey most uh, uh, and that <laughs> they auditioned it the same way they they had to sing it down the phone to mickey most and he just he just turned it down the that's, good the good old days that's a th that's the way things happened in those days you know you, you know you would audition songs down the phone and the producer you had 30 seconds if the producer didn't like it he'd turn it down i thought that was an interesting story it's amazing it's just indicative of how much material they were probably you know churning out yeah. the number of songs most of which are lost now uh, but what we have, we're, we're, you know, it's it's um, we're so fortunate to to, to have the, the remaining songs because they're they're a real window into the into the early early process of, of their creative relationship. Totally. <laughs> Um, look, Paul, at some of the things that came just after those three demos, when Kevin Lowell were making more progress with record companies and recording in professional studios. Can we just mention uh, what appears to be Kev or Lowell's first appearance on a record? I was amazed to see that The Whirlwind's one and only single, which came out in 1964, um, was penned by Lowell. 
Yeah. And we played it during the Harvey episode, didn't we? Cracking tune, actually. Yeah, Baby Not Like You. Yeah. Um, It's very atypical. It doesn't sound anything like um, the new material which they sort of write together. It's... um, it's it's a Beatles knockoff. In fact, dare I say, it's almost a Ruttles knockoff. It sounds more like the Ruttles, perhaps. It's got elements of Love Me Do, the harmonica, Please Please yeah. Me, and and it, two years out of date, really. Yes, they're slightly. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe eighteen months, and yeah. a, a great gritty vocal from from Graham. There. Great vocal. From so Graham. it's it's a really good R and B track, although it's com- it, it, it's a kind of um, uh, not representative at all of 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 the godly and creaminess, if you like, that mm. they were shortly to show, but it's a, it's it's lovely to have it. Yeah, it must have been a proud moment for uh, for, for Lol to see his name on a, on a label. Oh, yeah. And how old would he have been then? Very, very young. Uh, hasn't he just celebrated his 72nd birthday? Somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> God, I can't do the maths yeah, back then. Right. He, was, he, was, he, he was young. He was he? young, he was young, yeah. Yeah. Baby, not like you. It wasn't long till Godly and Cream were able to actually release something uh, under the pretty unwieldy title of Yellow Bellow Boom Room. Have I got it's that so, right? Yeah, I think so. It's so hard to say. Yeah, that. even amongst, you know, psychedelia and, and, and long names of groups, that's a really bad choice, isn't it? Because it it's bloody difficult to say. I don't know where they got that name from. But, um, this <laughs> single released on the CBS label on the 12th of January 1968 um coupled seeing things green and easy life mm. uh, the the a, side, a game of two halves for me that's yeah the ace the a side seeing things green is very much of its time probably uh with one eye on all oh, this is the this is the commercial song and of all the early kevin law material this is one of the things i like least yeah. because it, it it it's a sort of dated um relatively unoriginal piece of psychedelia. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I like the idea of there being a flute and a xylophone on it. Yeah. But from the literally from the first syllable, you think it's in the wrong key for you. It's so high. And it, it just makes... They sound a bit like they're on helium to me. It's just in the wrong key. <laughs> that strong however the b-side which we which we both love yeah is called easy life which is a stunning lyric uh in which a life unfolds in in three minutes mm. really evocative transitioning from childhood to adulthood and then the kind of hunkering down uh, amidst the trappings of 
uh, of adulthood, mortgage and finance, and, yeah. and then the offhanded reference to, to dying at the end. It's a stunning lyric. I sit at the table, my spoon is no bigger than a pair of butterflies' wings put together with string. A thimble, a thing. I, I, I agree, I, and I love the, the, the visual image of him um, coming up to his granddad's knees and then he's looking, almost looking his granddad in the face. Yeah, it's, it's marvellous. It, it reminds me of a contemporary, a near-contemporary song, Lucas Graham's Seven Years, which oh, yeah, was yeah, a yeah. massive song recently, which yes. kind of starts off incrementally small and then the years go telescoping by. And, and uh, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, a lovely, it's a lovely song. Yeah, and musically... Uh, gorgeous as well the rising notes within the chords played on the guitar sort of um, picked quite fast reminds me of one of my favourite Glen Campbell tunes Gentle on my mind Do you oh know yeah that one yeah 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 uh, it's got the same kind of very subtly shifting chords it's fantastic that you're awaiting from the back roads by the rivers of my memories ever smiling ever gentle on my mind that there are nice other musical elements as well to fit with the the kind of childhood theme uh, there's a, a glockenspiel which sounds quite childlike I think mm-hmm. like a, a music box mm-hmm. there are strange kind of transition sections in the song where Lowell plays a, an almost aggressive kind of flamenco style guitar a wife yes the, the tempo seems to go a bit awry <laughs> And, yes, and um, it sticks out like a, a, a bit of a big thumb. I yeah, think well, they were still early in their career, and you know that they probably didn't have a lot of time, and certainly virtually no money to record these things. Mm. Um, so you know there were limitations built in. But given those, it's it's still it's still a, an affecting song. Yeah, I agree. And there's a, a real honesty in the vocal. He's not singing nearly as high as he was on seeing things green thank goodness and he's always he seems to be almost singing in his local accent in the manchester accent on it oh yeah that's right that adds a lot of a lot of honesty to it in my my mind yeah yeah do you know what i mean it's it's almost like he's speaking to us i gave up the piano and learned to tell lies stand next to granddad but only come up to his eyes Big for my size, growing better day by day. Yeah, Art Garfunkel not in the room at that stage. Yeah. <laughs> we'll come on to Art Garfunkel. Yeah, yeah. we will. Yeah. Well, well. Speaking speaking of which, um, uh, Giorgio Gamelski, who was Yardbirds' manager, I think he was also the Stones' manager. Um, That's right, and he he set up Crawdaddy, didn't he as well? Oh, did he? Yeah, he was he was a a, a real mover and shaker. Yeah, a really influential um, person in the music business. Of course, he um, you know he first came into the the orbit of the Ten CC uh, collective um, when the Yardbirds recorded "For Your Love," and um, uh, Gamelski was also uh, very keen on on Godly and Cream, and he came up with. An idea, which is actually a very strong idea, of marketing them as a kind of uh, British answer to Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. And I think he named them Frab Joy and Runcible Spoon. Um, is that right? Is that the full name? Yes. Yeah. Uh, which is actually kind of amalgam of, of two authors' uh, works, isn't That's it? right, Lewis Carroll and, and, and Edward Lear, is it? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a quite, a, quite a clever name, and it actually 
clever but not necessarily good <laughs> well it's kind of descriptive of i think simon and garfunkel were lucky that their names actually sounded you know like they did anyway we're getting off the track it um this um uh, combination or under this banner if you like of frab joy and runcible they recorded and released a single i'm beside myself backed with animal song mm. I'm Beside Myself is significant because it's the first time that the four members of 10CC um, played on a recording, all four of them. Yeah. I think we have this on good authority from a couple of sources. So that's significant in itself. This is a much stronger A-side than seeing things green from the previous year. Yeah, it's got I, a real drive to it, hasn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty commercial. It's pretty. It's a, it's a good song. But again, the A-side is um, overshadowed uh, artistically, I think, by the B-side. Well, the B-side's fabulous. The, the beautiful animal song. Can we just um, carry on talking about I'm Beside Myself first, Paul, just briefly. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I really like the chorus on this one, actually. Uh, does it remind you of the birds? It does. It does me. Right, with that descending figure. Yeah, I mean, you can almost imagine Roger McGuinn's twelve-string uh, electric on it, can't you? Yeah, yeah. So it's that uh, West Coast yeah. influence again that yeah, we talked definitely. about. Yeah. Hey, Mr. Spaceman, won't you please take me along? I won't do anything wrong. Not necessarily the New York Simon and Garfunkel influence that. Right. Uh, that. that <clears throat> pervades a lot of this early stuff I think mm-hmm. yeah, a couple of interesting nods forward in I'm Beside Myself one is the use of the harmonica there there's something about it that is reminiscent of uh, what would much later come on the Goodbye Blue Sky album oh, which yeah. I hope we'll, we'll, we'll get to talk about at some, uh, some uh, point in the future okay. but also that the fade really reminds me of Pig Bin and Gone Oh yeah, the Grumble single, which was like the the closest incarnation to 10cc, wasn't it? Because yeah. the four of them, we listened to it for about two hours constantly at the Stockport. It's on a loop at the museum. That's why it's in your yeah, mind. Yeah, absolutely. But definitely, we'll hear the two together now and see, ah. see if you see if you can if you can hear what I'm hearing. Interesting. But I'm with you. Animal song is is gorgeous. The textures are, are, are superb. I really like the the arpeggios that, that come in uh, straight away. It's almost like a like a sitar type effect. Yeah. Uh, maybe even a piano with a, a heavy chorus effect on it or something. It's a really lovely Asian sort of influence that I think is is gorgeous. And alongside the the soft sort of twelve string and and the bed of harmonies and everything, I think it's really superb. Days beginning with a watery sun. The dew hangs like silver from a wet. 
web newly spun by a spider whose body is as gold as the sun. The doctor is smiling. Your girl's had a son. A beaver is building a home in the stream. He'll down the Pacific. He dreamt in a dream. Two dragonflies watch him from bushes and reeds. The beaver will build. There's some stunning vocal work from Kev where he hits some amazing oh. notes and unexpected notes uh, yeah. and that, that adds a lot. What I mean, a range he's got. Yeah, and he's really, really... Um, and he's not showing off... They're not, they're not vocal gymnastics for the sake of it. They're, they're, they're written into the song yeah. and, and they're absolutely... They're part of the beautiful melody, aren't they? They are, and it's, it's a really tender, fragile lyric... Um, a, a, a assigning or ascribing roles to this, you know, wide collective of, of animals, this kind mm. of scene, um, uh, this nature scene that's viewed by the, by the sort of all-seeing eye of the, of the observer. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind it's, of like a thinking man's octopus's garden, isn't it? <laughs> The monkeys stand for honesty, giraffes are insincere, and the elephants are kindly, but they're dumb. Animals come up an awful lot in, in these early lyrics, Paul. I'm not, not sure if you picked up on that. Yeah. We, you have shoals of fish, I think that's in seaside, possibly best seaside, yeah. yeah. Um, countryside. All that sort of they're very uh, pastoral, I think is the word. Kev mm. describes some of the songs has been quite rural mm. and they are um, they're not singing about life in the city yeah they're singing about life in the countryside with the butterflies yeah tied together with string yeah I, I wonder where that comes from um, yeah it doesn't seem to sound like Manchester or Stoke <laughs> where Kev was at college <laughs> or Birmingham where LOL was right yeah exactly so it's it's mysterious um, but you know, a, a, another another lovely lovely song. Yeah, some the start of some really interesting lyrics as well. I, I particularly like the line in Animal Song where Kev sings, "The music is sweet, but the grammar's all wrong." Mm. It, that's odd. I, I like it. It, it. it entices me in because I'm a bit of a grammar queen anyway. And I'm thinking, well, what does he mean by that? Mm -hmm. What does he mean? I don't know. That was that rhetorical question. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we've stopped asking people to send things in on postcards because they never arrive. <laughs> the parrot is learning the words of a song. The music is sweet, but the grammar's all wrong. You sing to a porpoise who lives in a tree and charm all the fish. In a faraway sea. Yeah, I just, I just find that interesting. And yeah, we, we just wanted to bring this lovely song to the attention of anybody who may not have heard it before. So. Yeah, and uh, I really like hearing the the kind of early precursor echoes of things like "Horse with No Name," the America song. Um, there's definitely a Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young kind of element 
to a lot of these things. The harmonies are, are very tightly packed, mm-hmm. very satisfying, lovely pads of harmony. So uh, Gamelski um, also was instrumental in putting together a sampler, an LP sampler mm. for the Marmalade label, which yeah. I think he was starting, um, which is a very interesting LP. Um, contains tracks by all sorts of people, Brian Auger and Julie Driscoll, and there's probably some other significant artists that I can't remember. From yeah. our point of view, um, it's interesting because it has great song by, by Graham, which we'll talk about another time, perhaps the late Mr. Late. But... Um, it has what at that stage was titled Two Fly Away, which was um, another very early Godly and Cream song. We know it's early because it appears on this this tape or this, this yeah. picture of this tape that we've seen. Uh, this was a significant song for Care. He talks about leaving college, Stoke College, and driving down to London with Lol in in an MG sports car and the mm. windscreen was blown in and they, right. they nearly crashed. The bonnet's all wrecked and, yeah, it's in pouring rain, isn't it? Yeah, and then they arrive at uh, AdVision Studios um, for a session which is engineered by Eddie Orford, who was a, an, a, an engineer and producer of some standing. That's right, I mean, he, he, well, he Hendrix, did all he? of Yes's 70s stuff. She brings the sunshine to radio The sweetness and stares it with a spoon. Need I remind my eyes to see, my hand to touch, my mouth? Away I go like Ivanhoe with no surprise. Okay, yeah. I know he worked with Hendrix. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and probably tons of others. That's right. Um, so this is high high caliber um, setup they're walking into, and Kev says in his book how he'd how he'd never sung in front of a uh, you know a proper microphone before in a professional studio. So this throws a bit of, of a question mark into the timeline of these recent singles uh, that we've been talking about, seeing things green, and I'm. I'm beside, well, I'm beside myself, okay, that probably came later, but I'm, I'm not sure how To Fly Away could have post-dated um, the Seeing Things Green single, which was released right mm. at the start of 68. Anyway, we, we, we don't know, and, and maybe it doesn't matter in some senses, um, but this was a very early version of this, this lovely song, which came to fruition in a, in a slightly in a superior and, and uh, re-recorded version on the Hot Legs album. Yes, yes, I, I agree. And it's interesting, the, the earliest version we've got, which I think, am I right in thinking, Paul, is a demo recorded at Graham's house with the slightly ropey sounding guitar at the start? Is it the same version as this one that ended up on the Marmalade sampler? Although, again, that doesn't square with Kev singing at a studio unless they overdub something. I'm only aware of two versions of Two Fly Away, yeah. Stroke Fly Away, this one and the one that was on the Hot Legs album, but... Again, is the one on the Hot Legs album actually the one that Eddie Orford engineered? No, that that was a re-recording at Strawberry. Right, and we'll come on to that later for sure because okay. it's a, a landmark recording. I M H O, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Won't you take me down? 
It's a lovely repetitive melody that, and I love the, I love the purity of it. Uh, in 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 all the versions, f- to my ears, that they've not overstuffed it with too many instruments. It's it's, you can almost see the two of them alone on a stage performing it, uh, and I love Kev's vocal on it. It's it's beautiful and pure. It's almost the opposite of what they did with albums like Freeze Frame and L. Yes, um, they they talk about. I think um, paraphrasing here, but Kev talks about that at this stage they had a limited vocabulary um, musically, enabled, um, i.e., they weren't able to express themselves or only through the the way they could play and sing, mm-hmm. as if this isn't their true voice. But it it rings perfectly true to me. It's one of the most beautiful melodies. Came out of the the Ten CC group at at any time, and on the on the Hot Legs recording, they completely nail it. Yeah, um, it's got that beautiful flute part, which mm. just appears momentarily, and the, and the, the sections of the song are absolutely lovely. And it it, it points forward to I'm not in love with with Lowell's, um To fly. Mm. It, it sounds like it's because you know yeah. the the answering vocal, the answering vocal. Um, and you know, played on. I'm pretty sure it's played on nylon guitar, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and the arpeggios again. This the, the you know the, the the this feature of Lowell's writing that 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 threads all threads all the way through to his later work on piano in so many songs. Yeah. Uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful song. Uh, one of many you know within the Ten CC universe, which is pretty much completely unknown. Um, in in the wider world, yeah. this is one of the things I personally find so interesting mm. about this group and all the incarnations and combinations of the four musicians yeah, so comprising you go down those, it. Those little dark alleyways and ginnels. Yeah, um, that there's always something of treasure, isn't there? Buried buried down the end. Yeah, and I really don't think we're sort of ascribing more to these songs because they are unknown we'd like them anyway we i really think we'd like them uh you know were they as well known as you know the big hits yeah terrific terrific depth and and breadth of songwriting i agree just a a passing thought about fly away there's definitely that kind of simon and garfunkel thing you imagine them on stage where art garfunkel's singing the lead on say emily or or one of those songs Mm -hmm. um and lowell playing a kind of a Fingers only version of Paul Simon, mm-hmm. but there's a uh, there are a couple of sections in Fly Away that really remind me of Blowing in the Wind by Bob Dylan. Uh-huh. You know, how many times must a man walk down? Um, we, we can listen to them All here. All along the Union Line, yeah. See the, the, the lyrics are a very American type lyric. Yeah, okay. You know, the Union okay. Line um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Can, can only be from sort of Americana, can't it? Yeah. Right. And I wonder if Dylan was a uh, at least a background influence on them. I think he was an influence on everybody, though, wasn't he? Yeah. Mm. Okay. And especially as they're, as they're going totally for that for that folk angle. Right. All along the Union Line, 
traveling tale she's left behind. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? I think the Marmalade label ran out of money or just folded for some reason. Yeah. So To Fly Away was the the only song of this collection of songs to, to see the light of day and in a very limited form. Um, but happily, um, a lot of this early material did appear on the Hot Legs album, albeit completely overshadowed by the huge and accidental hit single, The Andrethal Man. Yeah. Uh, the Hot Legs album... It's really a game of two halves, that one, isn't it? Yeah, it's as patchy as you like. There are marvellous moments. There are tracks on it that I, that I adore, and there are tracks on it that, frankly, I find really hard work. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's, yeah, it, it's a real hodgepodge. Yeah. Um, but amongst the tracks are some of these wonderful early songs yeah. that... Clearly, Kevin Lowell didn't want to discard. I'm thinking primarily of Fly Away, Take Me Back, and Today. Mm. Today being a sort of later addition to the Hot Legs canon. Uh, and these three songs, which, which Kevin Lowell were carrying around, you know, uh, for years, um, to my mind, perhaps along with all God's children sort of form the musical backbone of the album. It's yes. a really strange album because Neanderthal Man and the kind of blues-based stuff and even Umwa Umwo, mm. which is an interesting record. I like it. They're, the ki- they're very much the kind of loud people at the party who are sort of, you know, making their presence felt, whereas these beautiful acoustic songs are almost entirely overlooked. Mm. And that's why I want to bring them into the the strange, the light. They're strange bedfellows, aren't oh, they? Oh yeah, it's an album. Uh, it's very difficult for listeners to get a handle on what this group Hot Legs represents. And yeah. I understand that. It's no th- wonder they they had so little success selling any records after after Neanderthal Man. I mean, any novelty hit is usually a curse, isn't it? But in this case, it was a novelty hit by a, a band of very clever very intelligent musicians who had a lot more to say than a, a tub-thumping uh, novelty record. In my opinion, they should have ditched the Hot Legs name straight away, treated that as a, as a one-hit wonder, and then reinvent themselves with a different name uh, and not had Neanderthal Man on it at all. I like that idea, but you can't throw away... Uh, a number two hit. Uh, no, uh, and then come out with another group name mm. starting from scratch. Of course, they did that a couple of years down the line. But yeah, I mean, they re-released the album without it, didn't they? When they changed the title. Yeah, that's right. When it was re-released song. in 71 as song, it didn't have Neanderthal Man that's on it. Right, so which... they, they did half try that. Yes, and, and it still <laughs> failed, of course. Uh, but like you, I think you alluded to, Paul, it's, it's such an eclectic record um, it's really hard to grasp it in your mind. Uh, and it, it's funny, my enjoyment of it completely depends on what sort of mood I'm in at the time. Sometimes I'm, I find myself really enjoying the unwound woes, mm. the kind of the more brutal side of the sound, mm. uh, or in, enjoy Eric's more sort of bluesy influence on it. And then other times I'm, I'm transported by the, the subtle, softer, gentle ones. 
there's a lot here, um, but it's a collection that is just almost too eclectic for its own good, isn't it, really? Well, I, I can't help but go back to where and when I first heard this record. This, this record's pretty dear to me, although only some of it. Um, I tune out all the kind of loud songs because yeah. the soft songs really made an impression on me. I, I went looking for this record uh, when I just started university at a record fair and I was thrilled because I think I found this, the Graham Goldman thing and possibly Song Cycle by Van Dyke Parks wow. on, on the same day. Yeah. But even laying those other two great albums aside, it was really this one that hit home immediately. But I only latched on to the soft songs, Take Me Back and Fly Away particularly, which really spoke to me. I, I was a bit homesick, I'd just started college, and I was fascinated to learn years and years later that, that these lyrics actually speak about the same thing. They mm. speak about, I think it's Kev's lyrics, speaking about, in his case, he was leaving college and branching out and leaving his you know environment that he felt comfortable in. And that's the story of fly away and yeah. take me back and i think they're they're they're, they're really beautiful i mean it, it, always music it depends the context in which you hear it yeah but these these songs it was particularly exciting because i was always a big already a big fan of 10cc but i really wasn't expecting this kind of open-hearted fragility in the lyrics yeah which really moved me at the time um and after this point you know uh godly and cream never wrote songs like this again, not lyrically. No. So it really catches them in a sort of unique moment in time. I know that these these songs, the keynote songs, if you like, were actually a bit older than the rest of the material. Yeah. Yeah, so, it's interesting that, sorry, that in, as their career as a duo went on in the, in the 80s, you did have the honesty, didn't you, in, in lyrics? But it was kind of, the honesty was brutal, and um, we'd look at things like punch bag and so on, freeze frame, yeah. the songs that that clearly have have uh, to a larger or lesser extent a lot of autobiographical content. Uh, the, the music is really quite butch and aggressive, isn't it? Yeah. Where, was that this couldn't be more effeminate? Very very lovely. Yeah, yeah, uh, f beautiful songs. Um, I also am a big fan of All God's Children. Which, I'm not so keen on that one. Really? I'm yeah. surprised. It's um, The lyrics are a bit more obscure, much more obscure, um, opaque, really. Yeah. But the the uh, the sound and the harmonies are lovely. You're not a big fan of the melody and the chords? Yeah, it, there's, yeah there's just something that doesn't get me about the, hey, about the melody. California. That's, my, that's a moment. That's the it? bit I like. Okay. That's the bit I like. Right. But, but the rest of it, it's... Nowhere near as harmonically beautiful as I think it thinks it is, Ooh. but we'll come on. We'll come on to that. Oh, okay, right. Uh, I mean, we've got to we've got to talk about Neanderthal Man. Yeah, we? let's. let's. And I, I love the story. We've we've heard it many many times. Uh, the experiment. They've got this brand new multi track machine that's arrived. Yeah, the four track, right? Yeah, and Kevin Lawler uh, feeling chuffed to bits that they've been invited in on this uh, exciting journey in this studio that Eric's. Uh, more or less built with his bare hands. Okay. So, so this is the four-track machine they bought with the money that came from the Super K sessions. That yeah, that's done right. So many of that intense period, sort of right from the end of 1969, the first few months of 1970, when all these bubblegum tracks were being recorded, and we'll talk about that in, in another episode. Yeah. And they ploughed the money from that 
I think, into into buying the new equipment for the yeah. for the studio. Yeah, uh, and it clearly paid off. I mean, the the recording quality of that early '70s strawberry stuff is really fantastic, and arguably on a par with with anything else you get further south. Mm. And they start testing out this this machine. Whether it's their first experiment with it, we don't know. But just the idea of overdubbing four drum kits one on top of another is is ridiculous i mean elo did it famously bev bevan would always double track his, oh, really? his drums yeah yeah he was very very good at it and i, I guess his simple style lent itself uh, oh, to that okay. but here you've got four drum kits so on, on on every single one of the four tracks kev's recording nothing but drums and then what they've done is bounce those down onto the the trusty two track tape recorder and then fed back a mix of that onto one of the tracks on the four track. It's a great sound. And again, it, it showcases Kev's amazing timing. The fact that you can't really hear that it's effectively four drummers playing on top of each other. I'm, it's really tight. No, you can't. It just sounds like a super, a superhuman kit, doesn't it? But a sort of giant kit being played, but it doesn't sound like four normal sized kits put on top of each That's other. That's it. I love it. And then the, the legendary thing of of Lowell just sort of strumming away lazily, singing a song that they'd started singing in the back of a taxi a few weeks before. This this sort of nursery rhyme thing about Neanderthal man. And I think at this stage he's sitting on or next to the, the kick drum. And when they play back the, the, the playback of Kev playing drums, you can, you can hear Lowell faintly through the bass drum mic. Right, because he's also essentially been recorded the same number of times, right? Yes, he was, that's he's right. He's been overdubbed as well. That's right. They just like something about the sound. Yeah. Very unusual. <clears throat> And I remember when I when I first heard the track, I was aware of it, and I think at that time I was aware it was a 10cc track as well. I was amazed at how quiet the vocals were. I was, and I, it, it, it infuriated me. <laughs> yeah, I used to hear it, it was on a, some kind of compilation album, and, and it just sounded. I thought this can't be right. I can't hear the singing. It's just like it's what, like what? there's a track missing or something like that. Yeah, uh, it's it's definitely different. I'm actually. Pretty surprised it was a big hit. I know, me too. Because the balance of the thing is, you know... It's just thump, thump, thump. Yeah. I mean, it, you imagine that when Kev's camping at that festival he talks about, and it, I think it was literally oh, yeah. that the, the week it had hit number two. Yeah. And he came out of the tent and he says, there are a thousand radios <laughs> playing this song. <laughs> I bet all you could actually hear was... <laughs> boom, cha, doom, cha. No, we're aware of the vocals. So, yeah, it's an unusual one. But I think when the, the other instrumentation comes in, it takes on a... And it suddenly becomes stereo. It's all yeah. very mono, isn't it, at the start, where it's literally these four tracks of drums and four tracks of, of lol singing and playing guitar. Yeah. It's all mono. And then suddenly you get this spread of some really nice effects. There's a tone generator, mm -hmm. uh, which I, I think they would have used in the studio for... Testing, calibrating tapes, yeah. yeah, that sort of thing, yeah. and and you get it's like an, a kind of an early synthy sort of sound, yes, rough. and an anvil, is it? Something's being some metallic things being yeah. hit, isn't and it, it? it all fits that. It all fits the caveman thing. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's really good, and there's some interesting chords going on there. Um, 
another example and throughout the hot legs album we'll we'll look at how they're using the same kind of chord techniques often where you've got a, a single bass note uh, often called a pedal bass note forming a drone and then chords change yes right above it below it around it right uh, and that's a very satisfying part of neanderthal man for me uh, it just takes it out of the idiot kind of macho nursery rhyme and into something a bit more prog and i i particularly like that I like how many times too. I particularly like the, the string quartet on this one. Really nice sound. It reminds me of early ELO actually. Yeah, I suppose it does. Again, I'm picking up a sort of Crosby, Stills and Nash vibe, harmony-wise. Again, my, it was not one of my go-to tracks. I just as a, from a songwriting point of view, uh, it, it doesn't, to me, seem as strong as his earlier, more felt songs. But it's, it's, it's a nice sound. This would have made perhaps a good um, compromise second single because it's pretty much the only track on the album maybe that straddles the, the soft and the loud. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, or, I know or, what you mean. The basic Neanderthal man and the complex and fragile fly away areas it's kind of in the middle no i'm with you that's a good point actually there are lots of things i like about it I mean, apart from the strings i i like the the, the airy sort of reverby drums uh very unlike 10cc where the the, the drum sound was in, incredibly close mic'd mm. and dry um this is them sounding a little bit like other people rather than i, I don't think they'd found their their sound they'd found their identity yet um and I think they were trying out different production styles on different tracks. How many times must I sing the same and that is interesting and it makes for, for really eclectic albums, but that's one of the reasons why these songs don't really knit together as a collection. Right. It's almost like a disparate demos, really, hot legs. And there are only a few tracks that seem to belong uh, in the same family together. We'll, we'll talk about the Eric, the, the Eric style songs later. Yes. They belong together. Yeah. They're very much of a type. Uh, and I, I guess things like Umwa Umwo belongs with Neanderthal Man, doesn't it? With that, that kind of... Um, it's sort of got a veneer of uh, primitivism, but it's not yeah. really. It's, it's actually sophisticated. Yes. But, but but there is a there is that kind of very masculine aggression, isn't there? Uh, yeah, I, the guttural chants yeah, and all that. I really like that track actually. I think because it's it's brutally simple. 
uh, and that chant is musically unusual. It's difficult to sing along with because the the, the rhythm is yes, yeah, in an odd meter, isn't it? Yeah, it, the, the, yeah, all of the syllables. Uh, are very syncopated. Yeah. Uh, and I find that makes it interesting for me. Yeah, when they bring in the counter, I can't call it a melody because it's just sort of more kind yeah. of chanting, but th- th- that, that that's pretty pretty powerful stuff. It is, and, and I think that the song's got a great groove. to my head, I'd say on Wan Wo is is possibly uh, the most logical follow-up single to yeah, Neanderthal Man. You're right. That's a better follow-up than how many times I think. Yeah, I, I, it would have fitted with Neanderthal Man, which w- would have made them uh, stereo. It, it would have made them typecast to appear on top of the pops, wary. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but hey ho, if it sells records. But well, that, yeah. there is some nice uh, 10cc elements in it as well. I was listening the the other day and and just noticed that the call and response vocals are panned hard left and hard right, uh-huh. which is reminiscent of so many of the uh, of the 10cc recordings. We think of Old Wild Men uh, and, and those sort of songs. Very, a very 10cc type technique, and I think it just works great. It's nice to hear Kev giving a rougher vocal as well. Mm. I love his beautiful pastoral, innocent, kind of pure, sweet vocal. But I also like to hear Kev, you know, balls out, if you like, for want of a better expression. Uh, and and uh, here I think his, his singing is is great. On a previous podcast as well, Paul, you were talking about Lowell using that rising melody. Uh, and here there's the, exactly that, yeah, that, that example. Yeah, this was the example I was thinking of. And then it keeps on going a bit longer than you think. It kind of goes over the top, um, and you get the same thing happening in Neanderthal Man, and and it appears elsewhere, I think, on, on the album. And, yes, and, it and does. It does. And you've got um, dueling guitars as well, which I presume are played by both Eric and and Lol. Yeah. And, and you know that harks forward to uh, what was going on on so many of the Ten CC tracks. So I think this this is an important key track on the album for me simply because there are raw elements of what would become a 10cc formula, for want of a, 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 better, a yeah, better word. you're right. The ingredients are there. They're yes. not quite The cooked. song isn't. They're not quite cooked to perfection, but yeah. uh, they'll come back and use those later. Right, right. Yeah. But um, I guess another reason, and this made me laugh when I was rereading the book recently, Part of the reason why Hot Legs failed as a, as a business enterprise after the first single was such a, a mammoth two million selling hit was that rather than plough the newfound money into uh, getting the show on uh, out on the road, getting the album finished quickly, they, they blew it on a holiday to Antigua, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which answers one of our questions from the L episode when we were looking at those spreadsheet lyrics oh, yeah. and holiday destinations. It was on there, wasn't Antigua it? Antigua was one of those destinations. So they must have been referring to 
um, to, to this holiday. And the Grundig thing is the make of tape recorder that they recorded those the early demos, demos on. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So L was uh, unlocked quite a few things. Must have been the first time they had enough money to go to Antigua, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. You yeah. can't blame them. <laughs> no, you would, though. You would. You, you would, would have a holiday, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, come on. Yeah. I'm a desperate man. I'm a desperate man. I'm almost a desperate, as desperate as no mind. I ain't alive no more. I don't need a chance to this to make me high. Oh yeah. I have a feeling that Desperate Dan was released as a single in Europe. Yes, oh. God knows why. It's yeah, an no, atrocious, atrocious. With apologies to Peter Tattersall, who plays left-handed boogie piano on <laughs> yeah, that, and very well too. And very well. That's probably the. One of the redeeming features of the track. Yeah. What were they thinking? Why the hell did they put that out? I've no idea. It's, it's decent boogie, but oh, it's it's ten a penny, isn't it? Boogie yeah. like that. It sounds. And the song's desperately bad. <laughs> and yeah, old-fashioned. It's it's yeah. Yeah, mind you, I, I did manage to find what I think is an interesting aspect of desperate. Oh yeah, that doesn't surprise uh, me. But no, yeah, but it, 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 I was desperate to find something good to say about it. I think this might be the birth of Eric's uh, guitar sound. You know, ah. where, where, where they're not using amps anymore, they're plugging the guitars direct into the desk. That's interesting. If we listen to this bit of the song in the guitar solo, right. that to me sounds like it, it's plugged directly into the desk. So I wonder if Desperate Dan does have a, a, a redeeming feature <laughs> after all. <laughs> So go on, Paul. I'm, I know you're dying to talk about taking well, well, back. Well, I've kind of already said it. Really, it's just it's just a lovely song that they that, that was an older song. Um, one of the ones which uh, Giorgio probably heard the Simon and Garfunkel influence on very strongly. It's a very it reminds me of Simon and Garfunkel. Um, it, it's got that um, the protagonist, you know, about to set off on a journey. It reminds me of I don't know. It reminds me of. The boxer or something you get a very very yeah. strong sense of self of, of the protagonist April come she will when streams are ripe and swelled with rain Still indulge myself in flights of fancy. I, I, I agree completely, totally. Simon and Garfunkel, also shades of Paul McCartney's quieter, more pastoral stuff. You know, I think things like Mother Nature's Son. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and the, the the lyrical focus tends to be on that kind of. You can imagine Kevin Lowell in some barn in the Scottish Highlands or something yeah with, with no one else for miles yeah beautiful sections take me back to old Virginia lay me on my bed of leaves show me the love that's in you yeah and, uh, don't know what those lyrics mean but uh, <laughs> they they evoked something for me in 1981 and they, and they still do today I think yeah it's, it's, it's a lovely song I'm not so keen on the the ending section where more instruments come in it doesn't really need that 
Uh, but then I, I do like the way they kind of fade out again, and you mm. and you're left with the kind of the um, the guitars twelve string, which I, th yeah. I think are kind of moving from minor back to major mm. on the same chord essentially. But it, it's a, it's a lovely song. I'm so glad they rescued it from those early sessions, and, and we have it, and we have it in a very well recorded place as well. So yeah, I like it. No, I agree, and I I, I really like the the extra instrumentation coming in. Oh, okay. uh, there's a lovely church organ mm. on there, which kind of echoes a slight uh, spirituality in the lyrics. There's a line, I was never meant to be a pilgrim, I think yeah. he says. Um, I can't imagine Godly and Cream using a lyric like that in 10cc or their, or their solo career. It just doesn't seem to fit with well, what we, we now know of them as artists. Uh, it's funny that, that had a, well, the way I read that, and you know, you just read a song personally. I presume they were familiar with singing that hymn, wasn't it? To, to, to be, be a, a pilgrim. pilgrim. Yeah. yeah. I was never meant to be a pilgrim. To me, sitting in my lonely dorm in you know Telford Hall, in Block Four, just meant, <laughs> and I never wanted to leave home in the first place in a slightly um, yeah. self-pitying way. That, yeah. That's you know that that's the way I read it. Who knows? But yeah. anyway, you know, thanks because it you know it's. Uh, it meant something to me at that point in time. So whatever it was intended, it you know, it, it, it moved me. Time in hand, hand in glove, I leave my borrowed friends, for I was never meant to be a pilgrim. I, th I think the sound of this is, is lovely. I, I love Lowell's 12-string guitar playing on all of this early stuff. It kind of reminds me of early Genesis, you know, particularly the stuff when Anthony Phillips was in the band. Mm. And they'd, they'd have sometimes two, sometimes three uh, members of the band playing 12-string guitars. Uh, yeah, often with different tunings. And the, very often and with the combinations tunings. creating a completely unique... Yeah, and um, Lol, the, Lol, I think, uses a lot of those the, those strange tunings mm -hmm. uh, on, on these early tracks. And, and again, this is another song that has the pedal bass, that bass drone, where the chords change around it. Right. It's a lovely effect. <clears throat> Are you with me, Paul, that at, uh, when we get the change of pace in this song, which I, I really like, the solo is a lot like Feel the Benefit. Right. So, do, you, do, so you, do you feel that? Yeah, so number one is Eric, when it kind of comes to a brief dead stop and then picks up again. Yeah. That's definitely... Yeah, yeah, the, the tone is there, isn't it? I've never really connected it with Feel the Benefit, but... Yeah. yeah. And quite beatly, I suppose. Yeah, there's a strong Beatle influence, which we'll talk about a little bit later as well, yes. because it really pervades certain parts of the album. But yeah, one of the one of the best tracks. I agree. There's another kind of throwaway Ericy uh, tune, isn't there? Uh, Run, baby, run. Which is immediately likable because, it, of course, it's it's sort of like a, a proto version of Art for Art's sake. Yeah, give me a bottle. Give me a bottle. <laughs> and another song about 
about drinking and alcoholism. Yeah. Yeah, they revisited it on the anonymous alcoholic, didn't they? Um, I mean, oh, Eric's a, a fan of fine wine, but I don't think he's, he's quite the drunk that he portrays in this in this tune. But I guess I'm not I'm not a big fan of the song, but I like the fact that the art for art's sake cowbell is played on a bottle of wine. <laughs> <laughs> dink, 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 dink. I like that. I mean, it's an obvious it's an obvious decision, uh, but it, it made me chuckle. <laughs> Much, much, much more interesting for me is Sweet F.A., which I really, really enjoy. Yeah, I think it, it, it is really enjoyable. I don't think it's as <clears throat> as strong as some of the other tracks. When uh, a contemporary reviewer will kind of dig out this album, this is usually the track that, that, that gets the most attention, perhaps because of its um, multi-partness. Yeah. For want of a better word. Um, the fact it sounds a bit like parts of Side 2 of Abbey Road. Yeah, and Kev mentions that in Space Cake and, and Fair Play, it does. And it's, it's still, it continues this theme of um, leaving indecision and return. I think mm-hmm. actually the three parts are labelled that way, aren't they? So it's this whole thing about leaving home and branching out. So that, 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 that fits with other songs on the album. Yes. And I think that there are just such a, a massive number of wonderful sounds in this track, mm. um, right from the word go and, until the end. Um, you've got, again, the 12 string. You've got a, a bass that really sounds like Graham is playing it. The same tone, the same style. I don't think he's on this track, though. No, but it, it, it absolutely sounds like the kind of thing he, he, he was doing. Right. And lovely, soft electric guitar lead lead parts um, again it reminds me of early Genesis and perhaps we should just just play a couple of little snippets of that so I can demonstrate what I mean sure uh, really nice lots of Beatles influence I think throughout the track there's a bit of the dear prudence descending uh, guitar chords um, there's a particularly in the more grandiose sections very reminiscent of the sort of things happening in the carry uh, carry that weight section carry that weight. Yeah, I, I picked that up too, and in the, the with the horn and everything. Yeah, and and the the outro with, with the sudden and really exciting introduction of Eric's guitar yes. over 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 the end coda as it as it kind of rotates round and round. That reminds of 
of you never give me your money perhaps or it, something like they that. They even steal the lyric, don't they? He says you, you give me your conversation. Oh, which yeah. is, is a direct I think a direct reference to yeah. uh, to, to money. Um, and I just really adore the way that that uh, finale builds up. There are textures added one by one at the end. You know, you've got the strings added, and then you the the, the brass joins in, and that is just absolutely superb. Mm. Um, quite how they they found all that room on four tracks is beyond me. Yeah, it must have been a lot of bouncing. A, a tremendous amount of bouncing. We were having a chat earlier on, and the thing with with doing all that bouncing on basic and in inverted commas machines is that you'd have had to plan uh, that bouncing really carefully in advance mm. so that you end up with a, a nice broad stereo picture you don't want for example drums drums and guitars panned left and vocals panned right you need it to go right across the stereo spectrum so I think presumably uh, Eric and, and Pete would have really planned these sessions out instrument by instrument to make sure that what what they ended up with the end product sounded full uh, didn't have any big holes in it and we know that you're right we know that for a fact because when we were lucky enough to hear on the record producers program some of the multi-tracks from a little bit later on with different combinations of instruments at different points yeah. on the same track and, just and, dropped a, in. and effects already applied yeah. all these things are, are mapped out in advance so clearly they were already doing this here to you know to great effect yeah really well organized as, yeah. as well as inspirational and creative Definitely. work in the studio yeah I can't remember which came first. Um, there's the the guitar breakdown about probably about halfway through the tune where Lol starts with that. I'm not sure you're that familiar with the producer's album. Uh, there's a basic a direct steal of that section uh, on one of the tracks on the producer's album. Yeah, is that? It's not barking up the right tree, is it? Uh, it might be all freeway. I can't remember which one it, when oh, okay, it is. Okay. But, Every note and the three-part harmony that where Lowell's sort of harmonising with himself is recreated. Oh, so well, a bit you, of self-plagiarism. Yeah, if you can't plagiarise from yourself. He's probably thinking, no one bought the bloody thing in the first place. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> but uh, that that really tickled me. Even though I, I don't find it a particularly enjoyable section, it's a bit long and, and, and grates a bit. But that does sound to me like another rough early version of the DI uh, guitar sound. Sure. Clearly, they hadn't perfected it yet, uh, but but you can just hear those elements, can't you? Of what would become the 10cc sound on the first album. Oh yeah. I wonder if you've picked up on on something which I think is really superb, inspired actually, Paul. There's a Beatley section uh, after that that um, the lol guitar breakdown, where Kev plays a rhythm part that is very evocative of a galloping horse. It doesn't sound like it. It doesn't sound like it's played on drums. It might be, I don't know, on a Tupperware tub or on his thighs or something. Right. Can we listen to it? Yes. Yeah, can we listen to it? It's really good. It's one of my favourite parts of the song. Don't you know you're getting on up? Don't look back 
we hear Lol or Eric singing some high backing vocals on that little bit? Yeah, not, I'm not sure which which one. It's difficult to pick out. I love. Uh, I'd forgotten just hearing that clip. I love it when Kev really pushes his voice <laughs> into overdrive. It yeah. almost cracks, but not quite. You know, yeah. really, um, really like that. He's got such a versatile voice, hasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he has. Yeah, and such a range as well. Yeah. Yeah, we we were talking about that those fabulous high notes he hits on Animal Song. And then, you know, just a, a year later, he'd be singing, Meanwhile, waiting by the telephone. <laughs> what a range. Incredible. Roll another cigarette. Help your mind forget. I don't care. I think the horn lines uh, on Sweet F.A. Are, are superb, extremely re reminiscent of the climactic bits on Side 2 of Abbey Road but beautifully played, um, lovely runs. Uh, I think it's a French horn for, to, to my ears. I suppose by that stage they had some knowledge on how to record larger ensembles in that small studio, right? Because they must have already been working with strings and horns yeah. with a Sid Lawrence orchestra for example they already would have been recording by that stage in yeah. in the studio and all sorts of collectives yeah. and, and, as, and as Kev freely admits they were chasing the dollar by saying yes to every every Tom, Dick and Harry who yeah. wanted to record there yeah. so their musical vocabulary was building on a daily basis wasn't yeah. it so Eric and, and Peter at that stage had to figure out how to record anything which came through the doors <laughs> yeah I wonder, somewhere buried on these these tracks, Paul, in Sweet F.A., mm -hmm. is that, that early gizmo that, that, that Kev talks about, you know, sticking a, um, a rubber on the end of, that's an eraser, on the end <laughs> of, of a drill. Yeah. Uh, and trying not to wreck Lowell's Strat. Um, Doesn't he it, say in his book that it's on the Hot Legs album? He does, but I, I've, been, I've been trying desperately to... To hear where it is, right. there are loads of strings on the album. And yeah, I think real they, strings. Yeah, yeah, they sound they sound wonderful, and I think I'm pretty sure that Sweet FA is the only place it it can be buried because it's it's not sticking out to me hmm. as um, as an obvious texture. Uh, I'd really love to know. I wonder if any of them can remember actually. Hmm. Um, hopefully, if we get to meet Pete Tassel in the near future, he he, he might have a. Uh, you know, a more accurate memory mm. uh, of that. So yeah, terrific track, Sweet F.A. It is long, but there's a lot going on. There's so much variety in the track. It doesn't seem to go on as long as, is it 13 minutes? No, not, none of the parts really repeat, do they, um, from memory? No. Um, part three isn't uh, isn't a kind of recap of part one. It's it's something new. Yes. Um, it's a collection of, of, of nice bits, isn't yeah, it? just like side two of Abbey Road. So in, in that yeah. way, it's entirely appropriate. They may have had like a scrap heap of bits of songs and they pasted them together yeah. in a very satisfying a very proggy, way. A very proggy yeah. thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't So that's, that's probably pound for pound my favourite track 
on the original version of the album that came out in in 71. Um, and I know that you're fond of All God's Children. Yeah. And I struggle a bit with that one. Yeah, I'm surprised to hear that. Uh, as you said, the lyrics are a bit more opaque than um, other Leaving Home songs. I'm doing air quotes here, but it's still, a, musically, it's a, it's a beautiful track with some sophisticated harmonies. They sound, they don't always work as well as later on 10cc harmonies. They, they sound maybe a bit more instinctive, perhaps not quite so well worked out yeah and and they they're not always the same harmonies either i'm talking about those slowly changing chords moving over a collection of four notes in sorry yes four notes in a linear fashion i don't many i don't know how many parts are in the chord mm. um yeah there's reminiscent of because and sunking actually in places yeah uh, yeah very much so yeah. yeah yeah um love while they may i'm thinking of you know those four notes yeah. and how they, they they embed different chords on top of and around them yes um but it's still it's still affecting i, re- I really like it yeah that there are there are moments and tastes within it that i really like i'm put off immediately by that very very dreary melody i just don't like oh, really? down by the bay yeah but that's just a peg and you hang the rest of the embellishments around yeah, it but it's not not a peg that, that particularly appeals to me you don't appeal that, to um, that whereas when the harmonies come in it, it becomes much more interesting for okay. me there uh, and and again there are some lovely nice brass lines around that i think i think it's the the same horn player i wish i knew his name actually because i, I really admire his playing on on this album nice bits we've talked about the hey california bit mm. which is comes out uh, uh, almost like the clouds are parting and, and suddenly there's this beautiful sunshine and blue sky but just before then there's there's some great harmonized guitar parts yeah i was just thinking really of that. muffled yeah uh, soft delicious that bit Yeah, recorded in a very unusual way, aren't they? Uh, again, resemblant of um, side two of Abbey Road, sunking as you were saying. But yeah. the actual sound isn't the same. It uh, sounds like Eric, doesn't it? Or is it Law? Possibly both. them both. Yeah, could be. Yeah. Couldn't it? Uh, there's a, a you were talking about suspensions earlier. There's a hell of a suspension there coming out of uh, the middle, isn't there? We'll sing along, we'll sing along. Yeah. So probably a, a lol trademark move there, yeah. like we're guessing. Sure. Do you think they're trying to be Beach Boysy? Oh, that is, it's got a real Beach Boys, particularly when they go to the humming bit mm. at the end. Definitely Beach Boys influence, which isn't that strong on this album. The Beatles... No, uh, and I'm surprised the... because the Beach Boys allegedly were a, a massive influence on on Kevin Lowell particularly. Yeah. Um, but you don't you don't really hear it. Um, it's it's funny that very often when you read reviews of of albums, and when there's a track that happens to have a falsetto uh, backing vocal on it, 
reviewers will, will always kind of hit the Brian Wilson knee-jerk button yeah. and say, oh, a Beach Boys influence. I'm wondering if they were able at that point to emulate the Beach Boys harmonies because they're very... They're a very individual style. They they nailed it on the Dean and I mm. and Rubber Bullets. Mm. Um, they are very, very Beach Boysy. Maybe they were attempting a Beach Boys sound on this one, but were trying to build the harmonies around the wrong... I don't know, the wrong voicing of the chords. It feels like a, an attempt at Beach Boysiness. There's the Hey California line, which is very evocative. If it was intended as a Beach Boys pastiche, then it's, it falls short of the mark. I'd much rather see it for itself, uh, which is a slightly disappointing song with some lovely, beautiful textures in it. Right. Um, so I'm sorry I don't sort of share your love of it. But I don't dislike it. Good. Glad to hear it. So part of Hot Legs' almost tragicomic story is, is the, the thought of them going out on the road with the Moody Blues, which sounds like a fantastic opportunity for them. But yeah. they only did three gigs, didn't they? Yeah, because John Lodge was taken ill, That's although right. they did do some gigs after. They went to the Hammy Odeon, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a pretty big gig. They were billed as Hot Legs and Friends, and of course by that stage Graham was back in the fold yeah. and playing live. So this was 10cc playing live. Um I don't think any, certainly no recordings survive that I know about, and nor even do any set lists. Mm, so mm. we're not quite sure what they what they played and and how they tried to pass that hot leg sound mm. and how they sort of you know attempted to combine the the R and B elements and and the soft. Sure, they seem to go. Apparently, elements. they seem to go down well at right. the time. Right. Well, audiences were were pretty receptive. Particularly a moody blues audience, yeah, a definite crossover with what they, what the lads were attempting here. Yeah. So the album wasn't getting anywhere, but they they, they still sort of tried to revive it from its slumber, didn't they? By adding, adding more tracks and and re-releasing it. Yeah, um, which again are a mixed bag. Yes, that's right. Um, one of which is is one of my all-time favourite 10cc related tracks, and the other one is just yeah very forgettable. <laughs> let's say, let's put it that way. Yeah, lady. Well, there's two other new tracks, isn't there? There's lady. Well, three new tracks. Oh yeah, no, of course there are three. Lady yeah. Sadie, the loser, and today, or perhaps we'll talk about today in a minute. Yeah. Um, yeah, the other two are I can't actually remember the loser very well, but it's another kind of R and B. Yeah, it, it's. Eric getting his slide guitar out, yeah, which starts that. I, I suppose it sets him on that trajectory of having at least one slide guitar solo on on every album, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, for for the rest of time. Um, and again, it's a, a changing chords over a pedal, a bass drone, um, sort of descending chords. It reminds me of you've got a cold. There's an energy there. Mm. Um, there are elements of modern man blues in there as well, and as you know, I'm not massive fans of that. Yeah. Uh, and Eric's singing in a in an interesting way. Eric's a brilliant singer. When you think what he was doing with the Mindbenders, and then um, I suppose from original soundtrack onwards, great 
beautiful vocals. But on the Hot Legs album, Eric is singing, it seems to me, in almost a pastiche way. So, it's almost like he's seen, seen having taken his false teeth out. <laughs> no, give me a brother! <laughs> Do you know I wish I mean? you could see what Sean's face here. I it's not particularly it, pretty. It's not, but it, uh, it's, it's a good dis- It's like he's hiding, he's hiding his voice under a bushel. He's trying to be a bit bluesy. Yeah, I guess he just hadn't found his voice. He didn't have that self-confidence yet. Maybe not. Uh, you remember how he sounded um, in Groovy Kind of Love, where he sounds great. Sounds yeah. like a hit maker and a hit singer, but yeah. it, it doesn't sound like Eric Stewart. It's a voice that fits the face. Good-looking chap, you know. Yeah, but it doesn't sound like Eric, does it? Whereas, you know, and, and coming through these R&B vocal affectations... After he's got through that phase as well, then he finds his voice on, let's say, Wall Street Shuffle, yeah. where he really comes into his own, and then he's up and running, and he's yeah. fantastic. This is only three years after, yeah. after this. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, yeah, it doesn't really. His vocals don't really come across properly, or you know, in the way they could do on, on this record. Yeah, and and he's very much the junior partner. Uh, from a songwriting point of view, isn't it? Yeah, but the senior partner in, in terms of experience in the business is age, I think, as well. Right. The fact that he's, you know, he is the master of the studio, Yeah. even well, at this stage. Yeah, and he had his hands full then, didn't he? You know, uh, when it was, you know, a different setup, they hadn't quite got used to that thing uh, where they just left a, a gap for Eric to do his performance elements of the song, perhaps. Yeah. They yeah. were sort of very much kind of the whole... Um, mode of operation was a work in progress wasn't it so maybe maybe it centered more around kevin lowell performing largely um and eric engineering and then you know swapping around mm. with, with peter tattershaw presumably engineering the bits eric did but yeah. I, I don't know for you, sure you, you may well be right yeah yeah Lady Sadie is a, a really interesting one. I, I, I quite like it. I think it's very direct. Uh, it's got a, a fabulous energy and that uh, great, almost rasping vocal from Kev. Very out of character. But there's a, a real mid-60s Atlantic stacks kind of feel to it, particularly the brass parts. Well, that, that lovely fruity trombone is great. Well, it's like a bit like a slowed down hold on, I'm coming, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Well, Sam, they, they were on stacks, were they? Were they stacks? Yeah, I'm sure they were, yeah. Right, so that, yeah, it's if you speed it up a bit, it sounds pretty close. Yeah, in fact, we'll try that. We'll put some Sam and Dave on with, <laughs> with this one sped up. Yeah, we'll meet them Give in the me middle to do. speed wise. Yeah. I think it's good and it's it is what a lot of the early Godling Cream demos weren't and by that I mean for all their beauty and uh, you know we've already talked about why we love the, the songs like Seaside and and Chaplin House and so on there's a lack of directness in them in terms of the uh, melodic hooks in some cases mm-hmm. but particularly um, lyric hooks we touched on it earlier there, there, there isn't, they haven't yet 
found a way of, of focusing uh, the listener's imagination into one idea that entices them in. They were masters of it straight away on right from the word go with 10cc. Yeah, load up, load up, load up with rubber bullets. For, I mean, for how, hooky, how hooky is that? You know, yeah. humdrum dears and humdrum. Yeah. You're there. You're totally there. Is that what they were aiming for, though, in those early songs? Weren't they just writing and, and seeing what came out? Yes, I, I, I don't think they... They hadn't learnt the craft of, 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 of finding those lyrical hooks. Right. That Eric, ironically, is almost more successful at on the Hot Legs album than Godly and Cream. His right. songs are less interesting musically, yeah, but yeah. lyrically, there's a focus. You know, run, baby, run. It's an immediately identifiable thing. The loser is immediately identifiable. Yeah, um, true. Whereas the Godly and Cream stuff tends to be a, b- a bit more hazy. It can't, yeah. It, you're it, almost trying to grapple through yeah, the it beauty. Morphs, it morphs into different sections, like yeah. wandering through a wood or something. Yeah, so yeah. what I really like about Lady Sadie is the directness of it. And the recording's great. The brass, it's, I, I it's forgot that. What a great sound and arrangement that is. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's still, the, still pointing backwards, though, or at least not pointing... It still sounds like someone else, you know. It doesn't. I know it doesn't what you mean. sound like them. Where, whereas the um, for all their un, for all the them being unfocused um, tracks like you know that fly away and, and take me back sound like no one else. They sound like yeah. Godly and Cream. I, I, I absolutely agree with you. It's, it's almost like Lady Sadie might be that the, the solitary tribute to all the Motown that. That Kev was getting so into in, in the in the sixties. Yeah, it's kind of a, a nod back to what what he'd enjoyed listening to. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's an odd bedfellow again, isn't it? If I turn upon you and I make it look easy today, 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 she smiles and keeps me hungry today, today, today. But leaving my absolute favourite till last. Yes. I think today is, is magnificent. I think it's great. Although the, the re-recording is is the definitive version. Yes. So today we know this is a song which was knocking around for a while. It's on this tape that we've mentioned a couple of times. So it dates from quite a long time back and they recorded it with Graham. I think it was the first sort of one of the first professional recordings with Graham. So right. his version or a version with him on does appear on the Hot Legs or revamped Hot Legs album mm. song. But the definitive version for me, and I don't know what you think about this, Sean, is, is the lovely version that came out as a single in October 72. Mm-hmm. Um, concurrent with Donna. Yeah. Um, by Competing a, with themselves. Yeah, by the band Festival. Yeah. Um, that a sort of one-off release. recording um, justifying this this wonderful song it's mm. a beautiful it's similar to waterfall in terms of its serious attempt I think at a hit record in a very straight mm. um, you know very straightforward way 
with Kev to the fore. You've stolen a, a thought oh, okay. I was going to come up with later. Carry on, okay. and I, I, I might have something with else Kev to say Kev to about the fore, because he's the best singer, certainly at that point, so that, that you know, everything is pointing to, they're making the very best job they can of it. Graham is playing fantastic bass line, oh, yeah. rolling round, you know, McCartney-esque bass line. And I love the way the piano and organ are kind of complementing Graham's bass playing. Yeah. It reminds me of old wild men in places, the way the, those... The, those three, four types of instrument are, are, are all literally melded together at, at, at a kind of molecular level and, and playing around each other. I think it's beautiful. Yeah, lovely. With the harpsichords as well. Yeah, and backing vocals uh, all the way through, threading through. It's a very involved recording. And, and I've got... There's so many, so many levels of layers of music on it. I've got a feeling we're still not hearing the best possible version of it because... Um, the version that we have by Festival appears, and we're really grateful for it, on the Strawberry Bubblegum mm. compilation. And yeah. it's one of the best recorded tracks on there, but I'm, I'm still not sure we're getting this thing at source. We, are we getting a needle drop, perhaps? It could be. It's, it's, there's a certain thinness to the yeah, sound. Yeah, so but... I would love to hear a, a remixed or even just an original mixed version of this song. Yeah. Um, I'm sure Eric's probably got a tape lurking in his cellar, hasn't oh, he? Oh, that would, that would be good yeah. to hear, wouldn't it? Have you spotted the Lazy Ways Triangle on this track, Paul? Oh, I don't think I did. <laughs> yeah, have a listen. <laughs> It's such a sumptuous arrangement, this. Uh, the chords are, are brilliant, and the layers and layers and layers that go on. Again, it must have been a four-track recording. So I think there's got to be four or five instruments bounced onto every single track of this. Right. Particularly at the end, you know, when you get that wonderful um, DI'd fuzz bass or fuzz guitar coming yeah. in. Yeah. Um, and, and you've got a huge frequency range at that point. Uh, it, it almost makes your hair blow backwards. Yeah. The power of the bass on that end section, I know we keep banging on about that today, that the pedal bass going underneath, the changing right. chords, it is absolutely fabulous. But, but it, it brings, it, honestly, it, it brings the hairs up on my arms. But it, I mean, without a, a great song at the centre, again, it would all yeah. fall apart. Again, the arrangement at the service of a of a, a very um, very good song is, is is always a combination that works. And yeah. The song sort of moves sedately along. It refuses to be hurried. It moves through lots of different movements and sections. Have you noticed right at the end, as it fades, as yeah, it moves into yet another kind of. Harmonic passage that hasn't appeared before. So there's a there's a wealth yeah. of no, I, I agree. there's a wealth of invention um, from a songwriting purely from a songwriting yeah. point of view going along. Another very tender lyric. Um, yeah, I love it. Yeah, and gorgeous melody. Do you think that's another lol melody where he goes today, 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 today? Yeah, the ascending thing again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's it's fantastic. Every aspect of it, I think, is is marvelous. Maybe not commercial um, perhaps too much going on well it's a bit back to your point there they're still yeah it's not 
it hasn't got a central unifying hook almost yes. that, you, that, that everything can kind of coalesce around. Yeah, and today isn't necessarily a. It doesn't encourage an audience to kind of visualise anything. Does yeah, it, could could be. I mean, just throwing it could be a girl's name or something instead. Two yeah. syllable name maybe. But yeah. Does, you know why? Why bother with that? Just go for the great <laughs> song as it is. We're not saying you should rewrite a thing, but yeah. Um, anyway, they, they needn't have bothered, need they? Because at exactly that time, they were they were launching their hit career with Donna. So yeah, that's right. Listening to the Strawberry Bubblegum version, I think they've done some vocal o- overdubs where um, it sounds like Lowell singing um bap um bap something mm. like that. Yeah. The the way they're recorded and mixed really reminds me. Uh, one of my favourite albums in the universe, Sunflower by the Beach Boys, uh, where the the backing vocals are, are mixed incredibly dry and incredibly thin, rather like the acoustic guitar sound that we were talking about on the later 10cc stuff, where Eric's taken out the bass and, and middle frequencies. They've done the same with the BVs on this track. Right. So you've got this really thin, beautiful pad uh, of harmonies. They sound... Uh, a little bit like a, in a beautiful way, like a swarm of bees. It's just this, this really gorgeous thin sound. Late at night I think about love of And that had to be done there, right? Because those those syllable sounds are they're laid on top of the existing pad that's already there. So for them to kind of stand out, yeah, particularly with everything else going on, they had yeah. to be very cleverly um, highlighted, and that's what they've done there. Definitely, right? it, and it, it might be a precursor to what they did with "I'm Not in Love" as well. Yeah, um, certainly at the at the first part of the song and, and the latter part, uh, you've got that. Uh, almost like a permanent bed. Yeah, it sounds like a loop, but uh, or may or maybe they were just singing for as long as they could, and then yeah. several takes merged together. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I, th- they, I think they probably bounced um, several times just to give that really thick wad of harmonies. Just listening again, we've just listened, re-listened to it, and again, you know, Kev's lead vocal as it's ever, brilliant. stellar. The thing that I, I noticed there, listening to it that time was how, and he doesn't normally do this, his phrasing's quite lazy, it's just behind the beat in some cases. I like that. That kind of Sinatra, Karen Carpenter approach, mm. which, it's subtle, it's, it's not as pronounced as Sinatra anywhere near, but I wonder whether that, <clears throat> because at that stage, he must have been, you know, he knew that song very well and was mm. amazingly familiar with it. They'd already professionally recorded it at least once and he'd been living with it for years. Yes. Doesn't sound like he's fed up with it. Sounds like he's still investing himself in it. So maybe that, that familiarity allowed a completely relaxed vocal on that, which really works in spades. I, think. I agree. It's not so easy to And just listening to the fade there, it reminds me of that, that gorgeous, kind of uncertain ending of By the Time I Get to Phoenix. Yeah. 
uh, fades away with with a chord change that seems to suggest there's more coming. Yeah, that's right. You never get to hear where it's going on. Yeah, that's that right. That's right. So it really it's it's right up there in, in probably my top ten of ten CC related tracks, Paul. To be honest, mm. um, but you know me, I'm a I'm a big texture man. I'm a big sort of production man. Um, yeah. And even though it's not it's not by any stretch the best song by that these four chaps put out as a production it's way ahead of waterfall for me um it's got similarities Hmm. with waterfall you touched on it earlier yeah sounds like they're going they're actually they're putting the suits on you know uh, inverted commas and they're saying right we're going to knuckle down and we just do something serious yes yeah we're 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 grown up we're clever musicians and producers and we, we want to make something that's Quality AOR. Waterfall, and it's falling down on me. Waterfall, and it's falling down, but it ain't gonna let me be. And of course, ironically, the, the, the song that you know was competing with that one, <laughs> which couldn't be less serious if it tried, was yeah. what brought them success. And that's exactly what I was going to talk about. Do you know what what kind of hangs over? Our whole conversation today, Paul, with some of this wonderful stuff that we've listened to, the fascinating beginnings of Godly and Cream as artists, their their Simon and Garfunkelness, their their late Beatlesness, um, arguably a kind of West Coast influence. Kev is the lead singer. Why is that seismic gear shift from nebulous songs sung by Kev? into suddenly hooky, immediate, commercial, straight for the jugular pop songs sung by LOL. Where did that come from? Yeah, I don't know. There's no evidence for it on almost anything that we've listened to today. Well, Neanderthal Man. Right. Y- yes. I mean that. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. Because... A good point. But that was almost by accident because yeah. he was just—he happened to be sitting by the bass. Yeah, drum. I know. But so was Donna. In that, that was by accident because it was a kind of joke that suddenly turned into a. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? It, but... it just doesn't. It doesn't fit with the, the narrative of this story. No, it doesn't. Is that they're a, a they're a, a very very good AOR band uh, in the making with Kev Godley as the singing drummer. Yeah, and suddenly LOL appears like an explosion in 1972. Yeah, it does, and it's funny because you know you tend to think of LOL as the lead singer, and when he kind of disappears from that role, yeah, it's seen as a retreat. But really, it was a bit of an aberration in the first place. It really was. It's almost like he was never meant to be a lead no, singer. No, no, he just kind of. But he sang lead on the first three hit singles, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he was the sound of 10cc, so yeah, who's, who's to know? I mean, sometimes these things do, you know. Yeah. So, uh, it, arguably, the, 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 the earlier stuff that we've looked at today really doesn't give any clues as to what's coming just around the corner, does it really? No, and the, and they, the clue, uh, or, or the, the key, was to kind of plug in into the 50s, wasn't it? But not in, not in an R&B way uh, that they were... With the hot legs, they're going slightly further back to rock and roll, to that kind of uh, compound meter as well. And and the comic books, uh, you know, for the the, the kind of irresistible um, lyric ideas. Yeah. Um, The cartoons, maybe. Um, 
Yeah, and, and an incredible change of focus for them. They've gone yeah. from the countryside to, you know, bright urban, primary, urban California primary colours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Neon signs, flashing advertising hoardings. That, yeah. And New York. Yeah, America. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very, very interesting. Fascinating. been listening to the consequences podcast produced by paul mcnulty and sean mccreevy thanks for listening